Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. My name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and I'm also co-chair of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association JOMA Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really excited to be here today with Devora Enton. Devora Enton is a licensed clinical social worker. She also has a degree PMHC, which I'll mention in a minute. She has developed programs for the Jewish Family Children's Services in both Phoenix and Philadelphia to address the unique mental health needs of Orthodox Jewish community with special interest in maternal wellness, infertility, culturally nuanced care, and general mental health. With specialized certification from the Postpartum Support International in maternal mental health and compassionate bereavement support by the Miss Foundation in perinatal death. Devora moderates monthly pregnancy loss and infertility phone support calls through the organizations Knafaim and Yesh Tikva, with participation from across the country. In 2017, her Bloom program to engage the Jewish community in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders won a Perinatal Mental Health Society Innovation Award in partnership with 2020 Mom. Devorah maintains a private practice in Philadelphia and consults and presents nationally about reproductive health matters. Devorah can be reached at her website, devorahenton.com. I'm going to spell that D-V-O-R-A-E-N-T-I-N.com. And we could talk all day about so many things. Thank you so, so much for joining me, Devorah. Thank you. My pleasure. So many letters in that introduction. My apologies. It's oh my so gosh. nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. You too. So th- there's a million different topics we could talk about here. I mean, men- maternal mental health is vast. Yes, very much so. Very, and, very much. It's definitely an umbrella. Yes. And we're talking in the context of this COVID pandemic. So I, I really do want to focus on maternal anxiety, partly from the perspective of what are now called perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, which used to be called postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Um especially with the focus on anxiety, because I think people are more aware of postpartum depression than they are about postpartum anxiety. And that anxiety right. doesn't Absolutely. end. So. No. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really, I think it's one of the most, um, one of the most important transitions that has happened in the field over the last number of years with the advancement of the data to really understand that what we, if you ask most professionals, do they see more depression or do they see more anxiety in the women that we serve? Most of our therapists are going to tell you, oh no, I have way more anxiety than we mm-hmm. have. Um, 100%. And so, so we have, and we have some new studies that came out of like British Columbia that also confirmed that our like kind of anecdotal evidence. And we are grateful for that perspective of having this seen as a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, this PMAD. Um, pers- uh, kind of umbrella. Now, just to clarify, that is not a spectrum of disorders. It isn't like, well, we start on the left side and it gets worse and worse as we go. But a P- but the PMAD category will include things like depression, anxiety, OCD, which tends to be extremely prevalent in this population. And of course, um, um, what are the more disastrous or more emergent situations, which, which would be postpartum psychosis. Nice. So we're really looking at a number of different components of the perinatal experience. And I think it's important to clarify as well, because we all called it postpartum depression, 
you know, women will go, I had a touch of postpartum, right? And everybody who has a baby has postpartum. Like that's right. what it is. It's a status of an experience of having given birth. Um, although, by the way, we also would include that for women who have adopted a child as well. Mm -hmm. So we have this postpartum experience. But really what we know is that the perinatal experience is one that from, a, from our perspective as therapists begins at conception and ends a year after delivery. And so I want us to think just in terms of perhaps the religious community, the Orthodox community, we could be in that perinatal state for many, many years of a woman's life, right? So if a woman has a child 18 to 20 months later, she's gone from perinatal to perinatal to perinatal period, um, which is why I think that it's so important for us to be having these important and robust conversations right. around perinatal mood and anxiety disorders because of our prevalence of having large families. And every time we get pregnant, we are we have the opportunity or the possibility of developing a mood disorder. Absolutely. So can we start by talking about the um, variations in the postpartum period? Yeah. So I think, you know, and you also really wanted us to kind of emphasize the anxiety component right. of it. And I think that, you know, from, a, from, from what we hear in the community, what we hear in the, in the field, I would say, so, you know, anxiety, we always, we tend to say, we tend to talk about this idea of just, I'm worried, I'm worried all the time. What we see in the postpartum period for, especially for new mothers or for a first time mom, we tend to hear things like, I am so irritable or I'm raging. We've been hearing a little bit more in the, the uh, kind of public press about postpartum rage. We really put that under the same category of anxiety in the postpartum period. So we're hearing things like irritability or like a restlessness or an anger or a, an um, uh, anxiety also has the features which kind of blends into that OCD experience of, I'm so worried and anxious that something's going to happen to my baby that I develop these intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that intrusive thinking, we can colloquially call them scary thoughts. Um, Karen Kleiman just wrote a magnificent publication called Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts. Um, beautiful book, highly recommend. Um, that is a, an acknowledgement that many women deal with intrusive thinking and scary thoughts as a kind of a normative experience in the postpartum cycle, but that there are those that it goes to an extreme that prevents them from actually fully functioning as moms. So an example of that scary thought might be something like, um, uh, I, I can't carry my baby down the stairs because what if I drop the baby? Or I have visions of myself even dropping the baby. I'm fully aware of my fear. I'm mm -hmm. scared. I'm actually overprotective of my child. So maybe I'll like tush bop down the steps in order to get that baby safely down to the first floor. But I am, uh, I am fully kind of um, absorbed in these scary thoughts of all the, the scary things that are going to happen to my child or could potentially happen to my child, either by my hand or by somebody else's. And I think that one of the things that as we discuss anxiety, especially in times of COVID, is that, you know, we, we can tell a mom, we can kind of do some reality testing for a mom in terms of like, what's the likelihood of you dropping the baby or throwing the baby down the stairs and you're so distressed by that thought and that's likely not going to happen. And we can kind of work with the mom from an anxiety perspective. But when we talk about the actual reality of threat that exists right now in terms of what if my child gets sick, what if I get sick, what if my mother gets sick, there's a component of those like scary thoughts that are real. Right. And so that's where things are getting a little bit confusing and also very complex. Um, you know, we could talk about this, that piece of it all day, but anxiety in the postpartum, the other piece that we want to acknowledge 
is that our data really supports that when a woman presents anxious after pregnancy, it's only because we missed it during pregnancy. Mm. The greatest indicator of postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, the greatest risk factor for both of those for any PMAD is the presentation of illness in pregnancy. So what we do is we really should be backing up our screening, backing right. up our questioning, backing up our awareness into the pregnancy and checking in on how mom is sleeping, eating, functioning. How are her thoughts? What is she ruminating about? What is she up at night thinking about? What are her... Um, what is her mood during pregnancy so we can help that transition happen more smoothly in the postpartum period. Most of these things are happening in pregnancy as well. Uh, ROB screening for this? Because I think I heard that they're so, supposed to be. They are, so there's an OBG, there's the ACOG recommendation, but it isn't, it's a recommendation. It isn't like you must be doing this. And, and so there are certain community and certain states will have additional regulations on that. But even then, you know, I, I heard from one woman who said, oh, yes, the nurse gave us the screen. And the typical screen is the EPDS right. or the Edinburgh. Um, and that they said, oh, yes, we get the screen at every visit. And I once, and a, a woman was telling me that she screened pretty high on a visit. The nurse handed it back to her and says, why don't you redo some of the questions? <gasps> nobody's really that sick. Yeah, it was really bad. Really but, you bad. know, the, the problem so, with screens, because I'm telling you as a pediatrician, this is what I do every day. The problem with screens yeah. is sometimes they're oversensitive. They pick up yes. things that aren't real, but a lot of times they miss stuff. They, you know, the person has to be honest and they have to yes. interpret a certain way. So nobody yes. should rely on screens alone. And the other thing I want to point out correct. before I forget is that the EPDS, I, I believe it really focuses more on um, depression, depression than anxiety. anxiety. So we have the PASS, also the PASS, and that is more towards anxiety. Um, it is another option. But I think the greater issue, there's a few layers. And so I'm going to go micro to macro. Wait, 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 wait. one minute. What's, what's the Sorry. PASS? A little PAS. <laughs> the PASS. It's the um, postpartum anxiety scale or anxiety screen. I can't remember oh, exactly. I got to get that. Okay. The PASS. Yeah. So the thing is like this. So you have, if you're telling me as a pediatrician that you're screening the moms, because realistically, we talk about the OB screening moms in the postpartum. So, all right, back it up. So moms are being screened there definitely are OBGYNs that are offering the screens to the moms, but two problems. One is those screens really may not go anywhere, especially if it's in on an electric, if it's on an on EMDR, right? If it's an, if, um, I'm sorry, on an EMR, it's right. on an emer, emer, uh, <laughs> electronic medical right. record. Right, not iWoman desensitization. Right, not an EMDR, exactly. No. <laughs> it's on an EMR. Um, if it, it may go nowhere. Another problem that we have is that the, many OBs kind of don't quite know where to refer or if they have uh, or whether they have a good referral resource. So for example, I happen to know that the in Curiosiol or Curiat KJ, they will screen at the visits. If mom screens positive, they do an immediate warm handoff to behavioral health. So behavioral health literally walks upstairs, the therapist walks upstairs mm -hmm. and can, sits with the mom in her office and discusses like, how about if we get you into some support, let's get you some therapy, get you some counseling, and maybe even get you into a referral to a psychiatrist if that's necessary. So, but those situations are on the little bit more on the unique side right. and are very le much less likely in a, in a private practice or a small group practice versus a clinic environment. Okay. So now right. we have mom in postpartum who gets screened. So the OBs will say, um, or let's say the pediatricians, because really the pediatricians, we ideally would like the pediatricians screening and the pediatricians actually also, right. So here's what happens on a national level. Pediatrician screens, the mom, mom screens positive for depression. Pediatrician says, um, I don't know what to do with this information. Number one, number two, meaning who am I sending this mom to? I don't have good 
referrals. And if I give her the name of a psychiatrist or a therapist, she may not take her insurance or she may not take insurance right. at all. I may have a psychiatrist that I trust, but who may not be comfortable prescribing for a mom who's breastfeeding. And so there's this, this it kind of lays flat. So mom will be given a brochure, in certain circumstances, mom will be given a brochure, uh, or the physician will say, this feels like a very big liability. I have a woman who just confided in me that she's suicidal, or she's exposed to me that she's suicidal. What do I do now? Because now I've got 30 more patients in my afternoon, and I have a mom in my office who's suicidal because she disclosed because I screened her, and I don't know, I don't have a handoff. So just as a kind of on the macro level, that is a big problem that we have that some states have done a really amazing job at addressing specifically, for example, Massachusetts has a, uh, a 24 hour, a, has a hotline. It's, it's sort of more of like a warm line where you leave the physician. It's only for physicians and prescribers. And they can call and say, I have a mom who's sitting in my office. I need a direct, you know, warm handoff to a psychiatrist tomorrow. Mom is suicidal, or I need somebody to like take this patient for me. And within the hour, they get a phone call back for the psychiatrist who is on call, who can assist in additional support screening and referral. So it's, it's something that has saved the state millions of dollars. It's been an amazing initiative that other states are beginning to copy. Um, there's also the question, you know, as a provider, you would also question things like billing, like where do I document the mom? Mom is not my patient. Can I bill as a dyad? Do I chart a dyad? Um, so these are just some of the like macro level issues that we are confronting in this perinatal mood anxiety disorder provider field that we're working towards better answers, but we're nowhere near we need to, where we need to be. Um, and that's a lot of the kind of, you're right, screening is only the first stage and first step. We need to have more providers who are really excellent in this field, who've trained in this field, who have um, specific training in this field in order to provide the services that are needed for the mothers as well. Right. Before we go on, just because we've been talking about referrals, if somebody is listening to this and says, hey, I really need to talk to someone, could we give them just a few places to turn right now? Yes. The number one place to go is Postpartum Support International. Okay. So PSHI has an extraordinary, it's postpartum.net. Um, PSI has a warm line. They will call you back the next day. Um, PSI has this incredible uh, network of trained providers, all of whom have taken coursework and proven their their training in this area across the country and actually across the globe. So I can call for a referral in Germany if I needed one or in Holland if I needed one. But if in the United States, I will be referred to, I will get a phone call back from the PSI coordinator, let's say in Pennsylvania, and she will find out my insurance. She'll find out what my needs are, doing a psychiatrist, doing a therapist, and then she'll provide me the list of providers that are, are in my area. Mm -hmm. um, so absolutely first line of defense is going to be PSI. Um, you know, somebody has a specific need, they're always welcome to reach out to me and I can try to connect them more directly. But PSI is hands down our first line of defense. Um, and also they really are connected to the providers who are trained in this area. And I would really caution an audience as somebody who's listening to this and says, well, you know, I could just go to any therapist and they could help me in these areas. I have to say that, you know, uh, as a I think that there is additional training that is needed in order to more fully understand how depression, anxiety, OCD presents in this population. It's not the same as how right. it presents in the general population. And we need to understand what women are really deeply um, struggling with and how the shame impacts them and how the guilt impacts them and also how the maternal attachment is going to impact. Um, because I think there's this more comprehensive look as looking at the mother and child attachment and how do I repair any kind of rupture that might have happened when mom was so anxious that she couldn't 
hold the baby, feed the baby, you know, nourish the baby. Um, so those would just be some of the kind of how critical it is that there be expertise in the area of the, of the person who we are referring to as a great therapist or a great psychiatrist. Now, in terms of treatment, um, we're sort of alluding to two basic paradigms, right? We're talking about therapy and mm -hmm. we're talking about medication. Yep. So I just want to go yes. into that a little bit more with a focus also on the concerns for breastfeeding, because that comes up Absolutely. commonly where people think, well, I'm not going to go for help because they're going to put me a medication and I don't want to take medication because I don't want to stop breastfeeding. breastfeeding. Right. So we really need so, to focus on that because that comes up totally, a lot. Totally. And I think that what's very important to know is that a fantastic psychiatrist will say, I will treat, and once heard this out of the mouth of Dr. Marlene Freeman, one of the reproductive psychiatrist, which is its own specialty, by the oh, way. Wow. Um, a repro psych in, has several fellowships across the country. It's not a huge kind of, it's, it's kind of on the newer side, I would say, 10, 15 years maybe, mm -hmm. of, of this extra layer of you have an adult psychiatrist who goes on for additional training in reproductive psychiatry. So these are professionals, clinicians who are uh, much more comfortable with prescribing in nursing or pregnant mothers. So I heard her say, I will not treat anybody unless they have a therapist on board, which I was like, I worship you right now. So <laughs> this is, you know, I love her, love, love, love her. Um, and I say that loudly because I just heard her on um, the Center for, uh, Center for Women's Health out of Boston, out of Harvard, is doing uh, free grand rounds virtually with the experts in maternal mental health. I mean, these are the people who are not only reviewing the data, but are doing the data. They're amazing. Um, anyways, she just had this, there was this whole conversation about pumping and dumping, and she made such a loud statement that was just extraordinary. And she says, you know, she was just talking about, about the needs of women to be functional within their lives. And it was oh just beautiful. Anyway, she's so just, she is a beautiful, beautiful speaker and presenter. And I've never heard anybody present data like she does, but that's my little like worship moment. So I actually want to go back over that just a little bit because there's a couple yeah. of points that may have gotten lost, you know, um, in that little bit. Right. So I do about... want to address the medication. I definitely want to address medication from in a minute. So you want me to do that first? No, I just want to just okay, go, go a little bit over that. Um, you talked about functional yes. and I mentioned yes. the fear of yep. medication and yes. the impact on breastfeeding. Um, yes. So that's a really important point. Why would we say that? Because, and I see this all the time, people who are swamped with anxiety, they can't even yes. see the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest, yes. whatever it is. I mean, they just, they're not functioning, but they can't get anywhere because of the fear of medication. But you also, Correct. I don't want to forget to say this, you also said you worship this woman because she demands therapy as well. And so I want you to talk a little bit before I go on about yes. what that does. Why is that important? Because a lot of people do, they sure. go for medication and they think they're done. Why are they not done? Right. So I'll answer, that's an easy one first, because medication will take the edge off of the situation, but it doesn't address the underlying core issues. Therapy is there to help a woman kind of recover from feeling this ill from, and, and anytime somebody has anxiety or depression, there's some, there, there's some underlying like thought process there that needs support, that needs help, that needs to be coped with. Maybe it was her own fear, of, maybe it was her own like dysfunctional attachment with her mother is resulting in her terribly frightened of connecting with this baby. Or maybe she has a previous multiple losses and she's so anxious that this baby will die as well. So we need to do some grief work around this mother, with this mother. So those are the kind of situations that will get addressed in 
therapy and also helping her process her thoughts and feelings about either being ill or becoming a mom or her partner or her relationship with her family and extended family or the fact that this pregnancy is the result of 10 years of infertility. Like those are the kind of things therapy addresses. So now come back to that incredibly important, probably the most common question is, well, I don't want to take medication when I'm pregnant, right? Like I don't drink, I don't smoke. And of course I would never take psychiatric medications when I'm pregnant. So this is the way that we will frame this. Again, I'm going to clarify and qualify that I'm not a psychiatric prescriber. I'm only mm. a therapist provider. So, um, but what we know is that it's not, I will treat or I will not treat. It's whether I'm going to have untreated depression or untreated illness. And both of those things have direct consequences. So there isn't zero risk. So a woman say, I would never put my baby at risk because I don't take medications while I'm breastfeeding, but it's not a zero risk. We know, and this is hard to kind of swallow, right. but we know that untreated illness has an impact on fetal development, child development, maternal fetal attachment, maternal child attachment, neurodevelopment. We have enough studies to show that a mom who is ill has, unfortunately, the baby is going to be um, impacted by untreated illness. So then we'll have moms who will say, well, I'll just decrease my Zoloft to 10, although 150 is really my like best dosing, but I'll just give it to 10 to try to get away with the least possible amount in my system, like a little bit of help. And then we have homeopathic. moms who are, not only that, it's not, here's the thing. Then you have baby fetus and baby exposed to undertreated illness right. and the medications. Now right. we've got a dual um, ex uh, exposure. So a really fabulous reproductive psychiatrist will help mothers and potential mothers, because the best time to have these conversations for women that have already a history of diagnosis of anxiety or depression, um, too often we will hear women go, I'm going to go off my meds in order to get pregnant. I'm like, oh, wait one second, especially bipolar, like women right. with bipolar. I'm like, no, 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 no. Best, best recommendation is let's have a conversation with your psychiatrist and let's figure out what the most effective course of treatment is for you to be healthy enough to maintain, carry, and deliver a pregnancy. Because if mom is manic, mom is depressed, mom is so anxious that she's not sleeping, then this is not going to be a healthy pregnancy for baby. So those kind of complicated uh, conversations, um, when you begin to really, really speak with the experts and really delve into the literature, they are so completely comfortable with the literature that they can confidently say, I am not concerned with you on Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The one, just by the way, because it's important to put it out there, the one exception to that is Depakote mm. that they keep, and I know there's, I forget the, uh, the non, um, the non uh, common name for it, but there are certain most, you know, that really a significant majority of psychiatric medications are safe or safe enough relating to the risk that the mother would have if she was in an untreated state. So for example, if Celexa is, the medication that she did has is the only one that she does well on, then it's unlikely that they're going to switch her to another medication that she's tried before mm -hmm. and failed with. So these kind of conversations and the pediatricians really can consult with a psychiatric provider. And by the way, we have PSI has a free provider to provider psychiatric line for the physicians who are Whoa. prescribers out there. You can leave a message and say, I'm a pediatrician. I have a nursing mom who's on medication A. I just want to get the good data on kind of what do you met, what do you suggest in terms of the breastfeeding, and the 
people like Marlene Freeman and Lee Cohn from Harvard have signed up to be volunteers Amazing. to return these phone calls. So you really have access to the data that's being produced and reviewed from around the world um, when you access the experts. So it's about knowing who to ask that you can get confident information from. And the same conversation as being pregnant on medication is the same conversation we have in breastfeeding and pregnancy. So there's differences of opinion. For example, the one medication that seems to still be a lot of differences of opinion is like lithium. Mm. Is it safe for breastfeeding? Is it not safe for breastfeeding? And I would defer immediately to whichever psychiatrist that the expert is, so a reproductive psychiatrist, who can either confidently, confidently say, I'm good with that, or I'd rather we try something different, or I would just prefer you not breastfeed. Um, just by the way, some psychiatrists as a course of treatment, which I've heard again and again, would say something like, if you want to have a baby and you have bipolar disorder, there's no reason you shouldn't. But the one thing we have to do is make sure that you're sleeping. And if you're breastfeeding every two hours at night, it really puts into risk your sleeping patterns. And so if we are planning a pregnancy, and we know that at least 50% of pregnancies are unplanned, but if we're planning a pregnancy, that might be part of a very healthy conversation to say, you want, you want to have another baby? Beautiful. You've been beautiful on your lithium. You've been doing great on your other medication. Let's talk about a postpartum sleep plan because we know that lack of sleep really can induce a mania. So right. those are the kind of things that we're really not telling mothers not to have kids with when they have a psychiatric illness, but a well-managed mother is going to be a healthy parent to the child Absolutely. that she wants to have. So you're talking really more of the more severe end of the spectrum. And I'm thinking about what about everybody else who may not have a prior history or their symptoms may be milder. And I feel like those people might be the ones to think, well, I don't need help. Right. So I would say to you that like, you know, um, that the things that we look at in the post, I'm going to just address in postpartum rather than during pregnancy, mm -hmm. but in the postpartum period, we always talk about the baby blues. The baby blues is exclusively the first two weeks postpartum. Mom is crying. Mom is tearful. She's, you know, the thing we always say is if she's crying at the Hallmark commercials, right? That was such a beautiful tissue commercial, right? That's very normal in the first weeks. It's just general hormonal fluctuation. We anticipate that kind of, um, you know, stabilizing about within the two weeks postpartum. Anything more than two weeks postpartum is no longer baby blues. And what we're trying to help mothers understand, women, family, parent, people in general is, you know, there's no mitzvah in suffering. There's no, you know, beauty. There's no joy in the suffer. And I think that women have this very, women especially tend to have a deep martyrdom like kind of perspective. Like I need to suck it up and I have to just deal with my stuff. Uh, I don't, I don't have time to get help or I don't have to deal with, I have to deal with my stuff alone because like it's my stuff and I don't want to like belabor this onto my family. I don't want to layer this onto my family. Um, and so they suffer in silence because there's so much shame in right. um, exposing the fact that they don't feel like they imagine feeling. So we'll have women who will say, I just, I don't really like this baby, or I didn't really know what I was signing up for, or I can't, I haven't slept in so many hours and I'm going out of my mind. Can you take it back? Right, um, and this, this is, I don't mean to judge, but this is also, we have such pressure in our society to be the perfect extreme. mother. Yep. So and the shame many children. For and to have many children. And right. I think that compounds it. Absolutely. And our absolutely. firm society, I mean, right? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So but even, the even in the secular world, right. Even in the secular the, world, there's this myth of the perfect mother and the mother shouldn't definitely. be like this. 
Definitely. Like with the books, what to expect when you're expecting books. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think that the, the thing that we're pushing back against is that perfectionistic expectation of what it means to be a perfect mom. I would say right. to you that even in times of quarantine right now, um, you know, we see both sides of the spectrum and we're seeing, it's fascinating to see in certain Facebook groups where people are posting their utter failures, or at least their sense of failure. Um, and, and disappointment in themselves, and then getting extraordinary support That's from great. other women and people who are saying, me too, me too, me too. Thank you for saying how I feel. Did you look into my bedroom and see what's happening in there? Like, you know, and I think that there still are those people who are posting the magnificent Magba Omer cakes that they made and that, you know, the people who are, and, and that's fine. That's their reality, but that doesn't mean that their laundry is clean and folded either. Right. Like we, we, pers we, we forget social media really pushes that like warped view of what's happening in other people's lives. You know, I remember, I remember finding out that somebody had gotten divorced and I was like, really? Cause they have this like unbelievable lovey dovey presentation on online like they're so kissy and they, yeah they're like kissy kissy and they're always on vacation and they look yeah. so happy and then they got divorced i'm like what happened right and we all fall for that trap of everybody else seems to be doing it better than i and there's very great value in the support system that's necessary to support a mom so we really encourage women to have a support group if they can a lot of them are virtual now um which makes them more accessible um, that's true you know, and give them that space to say, I don't know if I like this, or I'm really having a hard time, or I'm scared, or I'm sad, or I'm really nervous. Um, and then others can say to them, we get you, like we hear you, and it's okay, because we're, we're with you as well, or it gets better, it's going to get better. And that's really the messaging is that you're not alone. And with help, this will change, this will get better. But help when you get the support that a, a person really needs, you'll get better quicker. And I think that's the goal is to make sure that we don't develop an intractable illness, one that doesn't go quick enough and one that the family has to suffer through for an extended period of time until they realize what they're dealing with. Right. And it doesn't have to be medication. We talked a lot about medication, no. particularly for the more severe forms right. of this. Um, yeah. But you can do therapy alone. And you mentioned, you know, I think some people may think when they hear you talking about going through traumas, and I'm going to have to like go through, you know, my whole emotional background, but there's also cognitive behavior therapy, which is really not focused sure. on Correct. things that happen to you, but how yep. to deal with things in a non-medication way. So yeah, I think so that CBT, the, hmm. it, CBT and IPT, interpersonal therapy are both um, evidence-based specifically for the perinatal population. We definitely use others. Um, I don't want to underestimate the power or the impact of women who are dealing with birth trauma. I will mm. say to you that, and this is part of a much bigger conversation, the idea of how are these women going to be impacted by the COVID anxiety. So I would say that when women are questioning whether their birth, their partner is going to be at bedside, whether their doctor is going to be healthy enough to be at bedside, whether they're going to get to keep their baby at bedside or there's a risk of COVID and the baby is separated from the mom. Like there's circumstances that are happening to women out there right. or their husband's sick and they can't bring the husband to the hospital or husband has to leave right after the birth and is not allowed back in. Like there are so many pieces of this that they didn't anticipate. You know, the women that usually go to the Beit HaKolma or the 
the women's um, kind of recovery homes, right? Kim Paterne, right. Gives them the Kim Paterne homes, exactly, that they allow for, for this recovery that they were, oh, they were anticipating their whole, or just even being alone with their newborn, and now their three older kids are home with them, right? So that, I would say to you that we don't want to underestimate the intensity of that experience for women today, Absolutely. and what it's like for them. And what it's going to be like for them in six to 12 months time when they come out of their quarantine state or they come out of the intensity of what they're, you know, the intense experiencing and go, oh my God, what did I just survive? Right. right. Like, and so we do want to address that as a potential trauma. Um, so yes. And I, but I definitely agree with you as a therapist, my first line of defense is actually not medication. And it's, let's see how you do with some therapy. The only clause, to, the only kind of exclusion to that is going to be if a woman is not sleeping. So if she's mm-hmm. so agitated that she literally cannot sleep. As one of the providers I heard say, she goes, we have to get her well slept and then we can address everything else that's going on. So sleep has to be protected and enforced. If that's necessary, she may need medication to sleep. Mm-hmm. The other thing I should say is that postpartum psychosis is considered a, a medical emergency. It is a, an emergent visit. There's no let's manage this at home. And there's definitely no let's manage this at home with med- without medication. This is a psychiatric emergency that usually requires, almost always requires hospitalization. It's when a woman completely loses touch with reality. Um, all of the cases that you hear in the public news and the public media about the woman who drove her children into the water, killed her children, threw them off the cliff, threw them off the roof, those are women who are struggling, who are 99% likelihood suffering from postpartum psychosis. So every time you hear those stories and you hear that there's a newborn or somebody that's home, you know, that a few months old child at home, we in the field are going, ah, oh, shoot, another person that was missed. Like that could have been, that didn't have to happen. Um, Wait, it's so again, right. It's good that you're saying that right now because one yeah. of the problems with COVID is that nobody wants to go to the hospital. Yes. And, and that is actually what is being, it's interesting because we always tell people, you know, do not go to the hospital, don't go to the hospital. But we have to say to them, if this is a psychiatric emergency, go to a psychiatric hospital. I would suggest going to a psychiatric ward rather than a psychiatric hospital, but if you have one available where it's like a freestanding institution rather than a general hospital. Um, and to be aware that there are certain hospitals that have specialized units. So for example, in New York, um, um, North Shore has a inpatient psychiatric unit for uh, maternal mental health for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders mm-hmm. that is exclusively for women who are postpartum or pregnant. So that is, you know, there's a few of them. There's one at UNC, North Carolina. There's not a lot. And there's a few more growing in the IOP field where there's certain IOPs that have been developed for this population. But in terms of inpatient units, there aren't very many across the country. I think there's either three, I believe. but um, you know, so seek the least, the least, uh, you know, least restrictive and the most care with the least amount of risk. Right, but, but go. A, don't, don't sit there but researching But you have it. to go. go. A psychiatric emergency is one where a woman breaks from reality. So if a mother mm-hmm. starts saying to you things like, I don't think that my baby really likes me anymore because she told me, and the baby's mm-hmm. two weeks old, the baby told me that she doesn't like me and she wants me to, she, she doesn't think that I'm a good mother. And I heard her, she's brilliant. She talks to me in the middle of the night or the mother who starts talking about demons or the baby is the devil or God told her the baby is Mashiach. We had one mother who said the baby is Jesus, um, mm-hmm. you know, or another mother who described that her breasts were talking to her and doesn't everybody else hear they're, it's t- they're telling me that it's time to feed the baby. And it's really cool because my breasts talk. Obviously, that is a psychiatric emergency where there's a break from reality. By the way, most psychiatric emergencies like that are going to present in the first several weeks postpartum. It's mm-hmm. not li- as likely that that emergency will present 
uh, you know, seven months later, although it can happen. Are there signs for people in, at home with the postpartum mom to look for? <clears throat> Obviously, any break from reality. Mm-hmm. You know, woman starts talking crazy, believe her. Um, a woman who starts, who is, if a woman expresses her intrusive thoughts, which many of them do, won't do, mm-hmm. then to reassure her, we're going to get you the help that you need. You're not crazy. Remember, intrusive thoughts is different than psychosis. The intrusive thought, the mother is very much, it's egocentric. She knows, egodystonic. She knows deeply that this is a horrible thing and I would mm-hmm. never hurt my child. So if a woman is able to express that, reassure her that, you know, she's safe, her baby is safe with her and we're going to get you the help that you need. Um, but we're really looking at the general depression, anxiety symptoms. Mom's not sleeping, mom's not eating, mom's um, excessively worried up and pacing, up in the middle of the night, can't fall back asleep. Um, a lot of the things that, you know, tend to be very present when a woman is pregnant anyways, but it isn't impacting her. It is impacting her from an identity place. Like what kind of a horrible mother thinks that way? What kind of a horrible mother, you know, all, thinking about staying up all night, thinking about all the awful things that could happen to my child or happen to me. Um, so, you know, most importantly is don't ignore, if you're seeing, you know how we say, see something, say something. Mm-hmm. If you see something, say something, reach out to your pediatrician, reach out to your OB, reach out to your psychiatrist, psychiatrist friend and say, can I run something by you? Um, but just reassure her that it is going to get better and you're not alone. And there's tons of resources available if you know how to access them. Absolutely. I have to thank you so much. I mean, we could continue. I know you have an appointment. We could talk I about do. this, just this one subtopic all day. I and know. So many areas <laughs> that you're, you're have so much expertise in. So I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. And maybe we'll be able to do another talk on another facet of this someday. With pleasure. Thank you for caring enough to talk about it. Because we really, we need to reach more and more people. And thank you for being that voice. We do. Be well. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Take care. Right. Be well. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.